I hope you'll open your Bible with me to Joshua chapter 7. Perhaps you're thinking, Carl, we've been in there for a few weeks, haven't we? And if you're wondering, will we ever escape? There is hope in sight. We will be finishing God helping us, Joshua 7, next week. But we've been looking at this chapter in some depth because it's so pivotal in the life of the individual believer and in the life of a congregation, understanding the incredible damage that sin, especially hidden sin, does in the life of the church and in the life of the individual. And for context, as you're looking at Joshua 7, let me remind you, tiniest bit of background, Israel, as we look at Joshua 7, is in mourning. After God had joyfully, supernaturally delivered them out of Egypt into the promised land, after God had marked them out by a day of circumcision in the sacraments, after God had supernaturally accomplished victory at Jericho, and then after that triumphant first win in the promised land at Jericho, They send a tiny force to the tiny town of Ai, and they run into defeat. Why is this? Why do 36 men die of Israel taking over this tiny little village? Because there's sin in the camp, we find in Joshua 7, verse 11. God threatens to leave their presence. God tells them there will be no victory until they purge the evil from their midst. And God commands them to assemble. And the Lord sovereignly casts lots several times and finds Achan the cause of all their trouble. And now Achan has been discovered, and he stands before Joshua, the judge. And so let me encourage you to very carefully look with me at verse 19 through 22. Let's seek the Lord's help now. O sovereign Lord, you are the searcher and knower of all our hearts. As we hear you speak now in your words, keep us from any idea that you are ignorant of our ways or of our actions, or even our thoughts and intents. Teach us from this text that our hearts are laid open and bare before you, the searcher of all hearts. Send now the Holy Spirit, that he might instruct us, prick our consciences, call us even to repentance and confession of sin, and transform us by your grace tonight. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Sandy can confirm and testify that I sleep well almost every night sometimes much to her great annoyance. She said, how, how is it that you can do that? You can lay your head on the pillow and 45 seconds later you're fast asleep. And the joke is I always say, a clean conscience, I suppose. <laughs> she knows better than that. But there are times, actually there have been several times, when I've awakened in a cold sweat. And usually it's for reasons just like this. And somehow this is brought to my subconscious mind. I think of that occasion years ago in another place far away where a woman came up to me and I'd preached a sermon much like this one dealing with repentance and confession of sin, the necessity of it for all believers. And this woman said, I'm 37 years old and I've never heard a sermon on repentance in my life and I've been in church every Sunday of my life. My dad's an elder in the PCA. I've never heard this before. I think this may be marginal. I think you may be fishing here because I've never heard it. And then I think of the people who come to me and said, I've never heard this business of the deity of Christ. What is this? I've never heard it before. And so what wakes me up in a cold sweat is that someone who has sat under the ministry of the word at Woodruff Road would actually not have a clue what repentance and confession of sin are or how to go about it. And so I want to deliver myself from blood guilt. I want to sleep well tonight. And so please look carefully with me at this text because this text is a primer in how to repent and confess sin. 
It's a basic. Watch as we look at this great scene, which is very instructive for us. Because I want you to see what to do when you've sinned. And the Lord brings it to your attention. If you say, well, that's not a skill that I'll need very often. Our shorter catechism tells us that you and I sin daily in word. We sin daily in thought. And we sin daily in deed. And so indeed, what we're going to be looking at tonight is a very necessary skill. The ability to know what to do when we have sinned, how to confess our sin. Of course, the culture and sometimes even the church screams at us to rationalize our sin, rename our sin, cover our sin, ignore our sin, do anything but confess and repent. But the scripture gives us glorious models of what to do with our sin and what the godly thing is to do when we have sinned in word, thought, or deed like we will see tonight. And what I want you to see first in this whole process is Joshua acting as the representative of Christ, as a type, as a foreshadowing. We've been saying all through our exposition of the book of Joshua that one of the things you and I are meant to see as we examine Joshua is he's to be a down payment, a foreshadowing, a type of the greater Joshua. But in some dim, faint way, we see Jesus as we look at Joshua. And so here, even in the way that Joshua speaks to Achan, he pictures the greater Joshua to come. Look at the kindness and graciousness of the judge. Look at verse 19. Joshua speaks to the caught sinner. Achan has been revealed. The lot has been cast several times in Israel, and slowly it's been narrowed down from tribe to family to household to individual. And now Joshua, uh, Achan has been marked out. And Achan is standing there with the eyes of some two to five million people staring at him, God having found him out. Everyone is leaning in to the conversation. Joshua speaks to him and he begins this way. And be amazed at this. My son, I beg you, give glory to the Lord God of Israel. Even though Joshua is acting as God's magistrate and he's charged to punish sin, look how he addresses Achan. He speaks with kindness and dignity. He displays no self-righteousness. He uses no demeaning terms, even though he's about to engage in authoritative judgment. He speaks with dignity, as I said, showing value to this person. In this, he is much like our Lord Jesus Christ, who upon pointing out Judas, a far worse traitor than Achan, the Lord Jesus on the night before the crucifixion didn't turn to Judas and say, you son of hell, you minion of the devil's dark plans. He turned to him and said in John 13, as Judas started to slip out of the upper room, he simply said, what you do, do quickly. Even then, the Lord Jesus treats reprobate sinners under great judgment still with kindness and gentleness. Surely this is a model for how we are to treat the world. The media takes great delight in talking about the culture wars. But let me tell you, fellow believers, we have no warrant or mandate to speak harshly even to the most reprobate of sinners. Take this to the workplace with you tomorrow. Look how Joshua speaks to Achan. This man is a hardened, lying, thieving traitor who's brought about the death of 36 men in the covenant community. And Joshua is still gentle and gracious with him. Just as the Lord Jesus speaks later to the, the fulfillment of the type of Achan, Judas, with kindness and dignity. And notice what Joshua does. He says, speaking the truth in love. This is a model, by the way, of how to do that. That, by the way, is one of the most frequent pastoral questions I get. Carl, how do I do that? How do I speak the truth in love? 
Study verse 19. This is a great model where Joshua says, My son, I beg you, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and make confession to him and tell me now what you've done. Do not hide it from me. Joshua demands confession for two reasons. And this is the same in our lives. If Joshua were standing before you, before me right now, he would say to you, give glory to the Lord God and make confession to him. Tell me now what you've done and don't hide it from me. Why does he demand that Achan confess his sin? Two reasons. They're both in verse 19. Look at them carefully. As I said, I want us to understand the anatomy of confession and repentance. He demands that Achan confess his sin and name it openly. First of all, the first reason why is to glorify God. Do you notice that in verse 19? That's the crux of the matter. Now, this is going to be a concept that many of you will say, I don't think I've ever heard such a thing until tonight. He's demanding that Achan confess sin because until he does, God is robbed of some of his glory. What do I mean by that? This form of words, give glory to God and confess your sin. If it sounds familiar, it's because you'll find it again over and over in the scripture. For example, in John 9, you might want to look there. And I want you to see how the scriptures use this idea. It's not just a single usage concept here. In John chapter 9, the Pharisees are speaking to the man born blind, and the Lord Jesus healed him. And the Pharisees, blinded as they are spiritually, even though they have 20-20 vision, they're spiritually blind. And this man who was born blind sees better than all of them put together. But they say to the man who is healed of blindness in John 9, 24, using a familiar Israelite form of language. They're trying to get this healed man to confess that he's part of a hoax, a scam. And so they say to him, the same phrase that Joshua uses, give God the glory. We know that this man, Jesus, is a sinner. And what they're doing by prefacing that with give God the glory, they're saying, come on, come clean. Don't hide your sin. We know you're in on a giant scam. And the phrase, give God the glory, begins, the history of its usage begins right here in Joshua 7, 19. The Israelite community from this day forward, when they say to someone, come on, give God the glory, quit covering covering your sin, that's shorthand, which means... All that you are and all that you've done has been done before the eye of an all-knowing, all-seeing God. So speak as if you're in his presence. Render the praise to him that's due. The God of Israel is awesome in his omniscience, in his omnipresence, and you're denying this in a practical way. So come clean. Give God the glory. Grant that he's omniscient and knows your sin. In essence, what Joshua is saying to Achan is, whatever greatness Jehovah has, you're robbing God of his glory by refusing to confess sin and acknowledge it. You're saying God isn't really omniscient. He doesn't know. He's not omnipresent. So come on, give God his glory. Give him his due. Acknowledge that he knows all things and sees all things. Give back to God the glory you've robbed. God has shown to Achan just in the events of the previous half hour, as the lot has been cast several times, and each time it's come to rest on his tribe, his family, his household, and now him. God has shown his omniscience to the whole nation. Joshua is saying to Achan, give God glory and say he knew it all along. But whatever we do, 
This is a principle, this business of the glory of God. Whatever we do, we're to do to the glory of God. You remember 1 Corinthians 10 says, whether we do something so mundane as eating or drinking, even that we're to do to the glory of God. Since our chief end is to glorify God forever, we're told in the first question of our catechism that we're to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So God is robbed of his glory when men refuse to acknowledge their sins. Every Lord's Day, this is why we have a corporate confession of sin. Every Lord's Day, 52 weeks a year, we confess our sin and we're doing that to give God his glory and say, Lord, you know. You know that I need a redeemer. You know I need cleansing. You know of my sins. Now let me apply this to you for just a moment. Have you ever in all your Christian life seen your unconfessed sin as that which robs God of his glory? Have you said, I must confess my sin and honor God. I must quit covering my sin and acting like God doesn't know and see. I have to give God the glory and say, Lord, you're omniscient, you know. You're omnipresent, you were there. You saw my deed, you heard my words, you know my thoughts, and so I'm going to acknowledge your omnipresence and confess my sin and turn away from it in repentance. But there's a second demand for confession of sin. Look again at verse 19. Why? To be honest and give a full accounting. Joshua makes a second demand for confession of sin. He says, Make confession to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Why does he do this second demand? Not only to give God glory and to stop robbing him, but also to be honest and give a full accounting. Joshua is saying, not only are you robbing God of his glory until you do, but come on, just be honest. Quit playing games and skirting around the truth so that the perfection of God's justice will be seen and no question can be raised about the rightness of God's judgment. What he's saying to Achan is, don't blame shift, don't dodge, don't finger point, don't engage in psychobabble, don't rename your sin and call it something else, don't tell me about your sad childhood and how others warped your psyche. Step up. Take personal responsibility for your actions. Let me speak just as a sideline to boys and young men. My granddad said, my dad said, some of the most profound wisdom, they would say, I know a lot of 40-year-old boys, and I know some 12-year-old men. The difference is between a boy and a man is a man will always take responsibility for his actions. A boy never will. Parents, you know that you're succeeding in your parenting if your child, if they're 5, 6, 10, 15, 18, if they'll honestly take responsibility for their actions. If there's something that's deeply sick and wrong with our nation right now, it is the mania to avoid personal responsibility. Well, that's what Joshua is asking. I want you to look what this effect, by the way, until a man is honest, what effect this has on a man. Look at Psalm 32, because right now there are some of you who are playing mental chess with me and you're thinking, it's really not a big deal if I don't confess my sin. Carl, I have a litany of sin, but I'm, I'm not going to confess them. I love my sins too much to part with them. And besides that, it's not going to have any effect on me if I hold on to my sins, bury them deep in my heart. Psalm 32, David speaks of what happened to him until he confessed his sin. Psalm 32 is an autobiographical psalm. It's a psalm about premeditated sin and a sin that lingers for a year unconfessed. Sins of adultery, premeditated murder, and how David finally acknowledges his sin. He writes this about himself. 
He finally confesses his sin. He repents of it and turns away. And by the way, believer, in case you're thinking, I'm going to pull an Achim. I'm going to sin and I'm not going to confess it. I'm going to hide it. No one will be the wiser and it'll have no psychological side effects on me. Look at what David says by the Holy Spirit in Psalm 32.3. David writes, when I kept silent, in other words, when I didn't confess my sin, when I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. How heavy do you think an omnipotent God's hand can be upon you? Do you think it's weighty when God begins to press down upon you? On that person who refuses to confess his sin, he can crush you. And that's what David knows as a believer. He knows the weightiness and conviction of sin over unconfessed sin and lack of repentance. And David says there in Psalm 32, 5, my vitality was turned into the drought of summer. In other words, for a year, he just dragged around the palace. He couldn't sleep. He was miserable all the time. He got an ulcer and migraines over this issue of unconfessed sin. And look what David finally does. Look carefully at Psalm 32. Does David go to the psychiatrist to cure it and say, well, if I can go lay on somebody's couch and pay him $100 for half an hour, then I can cure my guilt. Maybe he can assign a phobia or a syndrome to it. That's not what he does. Look at Psalm 32, 5. He says, I acknowledged my sin to you. My iniquity I've not hidden. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. David sees the rightness of confession of sin, of honesty in giving a full accounting. And he takes responsibility for his actions. When sin is properly confessed, listen to me, this is a maxim. When sin is properly confessed, the confessor takes all the blame. When sin is properly confessed, the confessor takes all the blame. I don't know what your practice is when you go into your closet and you lay before God, a heart that is bare. But it's a fool's errand to begin to say, Oh, Lord, you know I did this, but it's not my fault. And, Lord, I, I thought this and I said that, but you know I really couldn't help it. I inherited that from my dad. And you know I looked at this, but this really wasn't my problem. I was unduly influenced. True confession lays bare the heart and takes full blame for sin. Now, I want you to look at Achan back in our text, <clears throat> and this is stunning. It ought to amaze you. Achan, even though is a reprobate, even though he's unregenerate, he serves as a model for us in many ways. His confession becomes more honest than many believers. Look at the confession made in verse 20 and 21. First of all, Achan focuses on the Godward direction of his sin. Look what he says in 20 and 21. He makes confession of sin, focusing on the Godward direction of his sin. He knows something that many believers still don't understand. He says in verse 20, Indeed, I've sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I've done. And he admits in verse 20 that his sin has been primarily against God. In this, he sounds just like David. David, in the second autobiographical psalm about his sin, just peek over there with me in Psalm 51 for a moment. David, in his second autobiographical psalm that he wrote about his premeditated sin of adultery and murder. David says in Psalm 51 verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned. Do you hear that? And you say, David, no, that's not right. You sinned against Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba. You lied to him. You had him murdered. But David says, no. In Psalm 51 4, 
speaking to the Lord against you and you only have I sinned. In both cases, David in Psalm 51 and Achan right here in verse 20, in both cases, men lost their lives because of their sin. In David's case, Uriah lost his life, and we read of that. And here, because of Achan's sin, 36 men lost their lives. Yet they both focus in on the truth that their sin is primarily against God. You see, there is no such thing ever, ever, ever. Let me disabuse you of this notion. There's no such thing as a victimless crime because God is always the chiefly offended party in sin. He is always the victim. The enormity of sin is not so much in what you've done. It's who you've done it against, the Holy One of Israel. And that's the first thing that Achan confesses. Look at his confession in verse 20. He begins with a theocentric confession. And he states, even though there are 36 widows in the camp because of his sin, even though Israel has had this demoralizing defeat and their enemies are gloating over them, Achan understands something theologically that many believers never come to grasp. He says it in verse 20. He states that first and foremost, sin is always against a holy God. Look deeper at his confession. Achan then gives a full narration of his sin. You know that true confession is happening. When somebody begins to do this, I can't tell you how many times in counseling I've been speaking with a man who's engaged in adultery and I'll say, okay, have you told me everything? Is that it? Just this one occasion? Yeah, that's it. I'm not going to find out anything else later, am I? No, nothing. Two or three weeks go by and you find out that was just the tip of the iceberg, that there are so many more. There was this case and the other case. Achan doesn't play that game. Look at him in our text. He gives the full narration. He lays it all out on the table. In this, he's a model for us in terms of confession. Look how he does this narrative. He shows us that sin follows a process. That sins like the one he engaged in of deliberate premeditated theft. That they don't just pop up out of nowhere. They always have the same cycle. In fact, that cycle, <clears throat> what you have is a is a historical illustration, but there's a didactic teaching in the New Testament that tells us what the cycle is. In James chapter 1, listen to how James states it. James gives you teaching on what the cycle is going to be every time. It's predictable. In James 1.14, James writes, Each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desire and enticed. Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. That's the cycle. Sin always follows this cyclical procedure. It's vital to recognize it, to know it, so we can address temptation. Now, look at Joshua 7 back in our text and see how this cycle plays out in the life of Achan. Achan says in verse 20 through 21, he first of all addresses sin's beginning. He says, well, when I saw among the spoils, in verse 21, it starts there. He's giving the full narration of his sin, and so watch carefully. He's saying sin begins with the visual attraction. It's the same thing David learned in his fall with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11. He was up on his roof and he saw Bathsheba. Something as simple as a glimpse. It starts with seeing. And it ends in tragedy. 
The Protestant reformers made much, if you read their writings on sanctification, of guarding the eyes because of how something can come into our field of vision and then the cycle starts. Job, this is what he says in protesting his innocence in Job 31 verse 1. He says, I've made a covenant with my eyes. But you see, we moderns are far too sophisticated. I can look at anything. Carl, I can look at pornography all day and it doesn't affect me. Some of you are easy prey for the evil one on this issue. You wonder why you keep stumbling and falling into sin, yet instead of plucking out eyes and turning away from looking at it, you stare at it for hours on end. This is where it begins. With the eyes. Achan tells us that. Look at verse 21. When I saw among the spoils. And then look at sin's progress. Sin's beginning is by seeing. It seems innocent enough, doesn't it? Remember Achan, where this, he's describing an incident that took place in the Battle of Jericho. Here's, here's Achan running through the, the Battle of Jericho. Swords and clubs swinging, people being struck down, blood. He's having to watch his back so that he's not stabbed. He's running by in the middle of the battle doing his duty. And he sees something over there. He sees a Babylonian robe. He sees some gold and th silver. You think, why? Well, that's innocent enough. But then sin makes progress. Looks what he does next. He says, I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment. By the way, we're going to find out later that this is a garment that's used in idolatrous practices. 200 shekels of silver, a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels. And then comes the next step. Look at verse 21. He says it with his own mouth. I coveted them. So it begins with seeing, and then it goes to coveting. He acknowledges that he violated the 10th commandment, you shall not covet. God had said these things, that the things that Achan took and hid, God had already said, those things are mine, the spoils of war. Achan admits, I looked at them, and even though they were unlawful, I wanted them. And that's what the height of covetousness is, desiring something that's unlawful for you to have. What God has said to you is off limits. You still want someone else's wife or someone else's property, someone else's life, someone else's children. And that's what makes Achan's sin so heinous. God had said, that's mine. But Achan said, no, I'm looking at it. I like it. I want it. I think I'm deprived if I don't get it. Just an excursus. This picture is a clear photograph of sin. Sin promises so much and delivers on nothing. Oh, if I had that wife, if I had those goods, if I had that home, if I had a different job, a different car, then I'd be happy, then I'd be satisfied. And the moment you have it, it rots in your hands. Sin also says, go ahead. You'll get away with it. Sin can't keep that promise either. But then look at sin's consummation in our text. Achan says, I coveted them, I saw them, I took them. Now he admits he violated the Eighth Commandment. You shall not steal. Do you see how theft doesn't just pop up out of nowhere? It has a history. The act of Achan scooping things up was the culmination of looking, coveting, and then taking. And oddly enough, he couldn't even enjoy or use these things. No sooner had he stolen them, they now become his burden and he has to hide them. He can't even enjoy them. Isn't that how sin always is? There's not even any real substantive joy in sin. And then I want you to look at sin's aggravations. Perhaps that's a new word or concept to you, the aggravation of sins. And I want you to 
not only use your Bible, but your hymnal. Look on page 960 of your hymnal. And I want you to look at our larger catechism on page 960. By the way, for those of you who are having trouble finding that in the back of your hymnal, I have children who are coming into my office who are reciting the entire larger catechism. They don't even need to turn in their hymnal. They have it right here. As I always say, our catechids program is probably one of the best things we do, if not the best thing. So they know the answer to this. I should probably just have them recite this right now. But if you look at larger catechism 151, the question is asked, after walking through the Ten Commandments, our larger catechism says, what are those aggravations that make some sins more heinous than others? And you see them, our, what our catechism says, if you are the type who says, oh, all sin is of a piece, they're all equal. No, they're not. Our catechism rightly says that all transgressions of the law of God are not equally heinous, but some sins in themselves and by reason of their aggravation are made more heinous in the sight of God than others. And I want you to look at some of the aggravations of Achan's sin. Not only does he look and covet and steal, but then he adds aggravation to it. He makes it worse. Look what he says in verse 21. Yeah, I coveted and took them. There they are hidden in the earth under my tent with the silver under it. He's adding insult to injury. Not only is he sin, but here's the aggravation. Now he's trying to cover his sin. Now he's trying to make it more difficult to unearth and catch him. Our sin is made much more wicked by such aggravations. Not only did Achan steal, but then he aggravated that attempt by, by attempting to hide his sin. Think of your secret sin right now. That one that you desperately hope no one finds out about. Your sin in and of itself is wicked enough. But what aggravates your sin is your hiding of the sin and covering it. Think of some of the aggravations of Achan's sin. He had the word of God. He knew better. <clears throat> this wasn't a pagan who had never heard the word of God. He had the Ten Commandments. He knew them by heart. But he sinned against them. <clears throat> what else aggravated his sin? He had the presence of God. Remember the ark was right there in the midst of Israel, symbolizing that God was with them. And this is a further aggravation. He sins <clears throat> before the face of God with knowledge of the law of God. <clears throat> Another aggravation, he had godly leaders who had taught him the truth. Another aggravation, he had godly fellowship. No one else had stolen. No one of Israel's armies had encouraged him to steal. On the contrary, others had encouraged him to righteousness. Another aggravation, he had adequate provision. He didn't need these things. He didn't need this robe. He didn't need a tent. He didn't need the silver and gold. He should have been content. Remember what Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, if we have food and covering with this, we shall be content. And so can you. If you have food and covering, you can be content. So think of all the aggravations of his sin. It wasn't just that he stole. It was that he stole in the face of God's word. It was that he stole in the face of God. It was that he stole contrary to godly leaders who told him otherwise. It was that he stole contrary to godly friends. It was that he stole even though he didn't need it. All these things make his sin aggravated. But my friends, listen to me carefully. When you sin, your sin is much more aggravated than Achan's. Because you sin against the full revelation of God's truth. Remember what Achan's Bible was? 
Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, maybe Job. But you sin against the full knowledge of Jesus Christ and his payment for sin. You sin against the full indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Your sin and mine is much more aggravated than Achan. Let me make three applications to us tonight. The first one is answering the big question that comes. Was Achan a believer? The, the brief answer is no. God holds out no prospect of mercy, only judgment for his sin. But today I offer you something better. I offer you something better than judgment. I offer to you mercy. Listen to Isaiah 55 and hear God's offer to all who are convicted of their sin. In Isaiah 55, 6, we have that glorious offer, the free offer of the gospel. Isaiah the prophet, writing hundreds of years even before the Lord Jesus Christ, makes an offer that still stands today. He says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. Listen to this promise. And he will have mercy. Our God will abundantly pardon. That's a better word than judgment. It's the word of mercy. When you read the saga of Achan, you should shudder and it should cause a chill to run down your spine. That this is the true and living God who finds out sinners. But this is the true and living God who tonight extends a hand of grace to you and says, Why will you die? I'm offering you mercy. Confess and forsake your sins and I'll abundantly pardon. Tonight I come as a preacher of the gospel to you. But if you shun God's offer, what you'll know is the exact same judgment Achan underwent. I plead with you tonight to hear God's free offer of pardon and mercy. A second application. Some of you right now struggle with the exact same root sin that Achan had. Do you remember what the root of all his problems was? Discontentment. Because as soon as he looked, that discontentment that raged in his heart found its next item to acquire. Lack of contentment. Why did Achan steal these things? His root sin, his heart sin was lack of contentment. He wasn't satisfied with the provisions God had given him. That would never bother you, would it? You've not said at any time in the last few hours or days, I wish I had that. I, I, I wish I had that. I need that. If I had that, then my situation would be different. Then I'd be happy. No, you wouldn't. Let me tell you that contentment is, I was speaking this morning with some sisters. We're talking about our love for Jeremiah Burroughs' book, the rare jewel of Christian contentment. This is something that ought to be read by you every year. I have it on my reading list once a year. <clears throat> I'm hoping to learn the lessons of it soon. <clears throat> this is something, the learning of contentment, is something that ought to be a corporate labor. I would plead with you as a body, if you hear me expressing any dissatisfaction with God's providential lot, remind me and say, Carl, on November 26, 2023, you said that we should be content if we had food and clothing. And I'll do the same for you. Because we should see from this text how deceptive lack of contentment is and what ruin it brings upon us. Contentment is something that isn't learned in a moment. It's learned in a difficult fashion. But the Apostle Paul gives us hope that it can be learned when he says in Philippians 4.11, I have learned in whatever situation to be content. 
This is perhaps the largest part of our sanctification. How often do you pray, Lord, take away my desires for more things? Lord, I have so many boxes stacked up from the UPS man on my front porch, I can't even open them all. But I'm just convinced if I order some more, that will make me happy. Do you pray, Lord, take away my complaints against your providential hand because you haven't done enough and give me the fruit of contentment. What it's going to take is you mortifying covetousness and putting on contentment. Contentment isn't natural. Coveting is. We must be taught by the Holy Spirit to be satisfied with God's plan. And so I would urge you in your daily time in the closet to plead with God saying, Lord, a contented heart. (coughs) That's my desire. Give me a contented heart and then I'll be glad with whatever your providence hands me. A third application. And one which I'd be remiss if I didn't press on. True confession of sin is not just naming the sin. Real repentance isn't just saying when you've been caught, yeah, I did it, you got me. Real repentance is not only confessing the sin, it's forsaking the sin. We just confessed this a moment ago. If you look back across the page to our creed, the confession of faith, it says in the chapter on repentance, every man is bound to make confession of his sins to God, praying for the pardon upon which and the forsaking of them he shall find mercy. In this, our confession is simply quoting Psalm 20 or Proverbs 28 that says, he who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. True repentance is not just saying when your mom catches you, your husband catches you, your wife catches you, saying, okay, I did it, and giving minimum information. Real repentance is giving the full narration of sin and then forsaking it. Turning 180 degrees away in hatred of that sin and purposing to walk in new obedience. That's what repentance is. Sadly enough, what we see Achan engaging in is a more transparent confession than many believers ever know. My friends, this is a basic spiritual discipline in the Christian life. We come into the Christian life by repentance and faith and we daily repent and believe. Be honest in your confession. Give glory to God, confessing your sin, and then you'll find mercy. May God grant you and I the gift of true repentance that we might name our sin, confess it, repent of it, forsake it.